Well, I was still living in South Africa when the World Cup soccer happened and Diego Maradona was uh, coming as the coach to the Argentinian soccer team. Um, I grew up supporting Argentina and so I was looking forward to this and I was always reading any kind of news I could find about the team or about Maradona who had been a hero of mine when I was in elementary school. Um, and a lot of the, the articles I read called him Maradona the prima donna. And, uh, and this is why, because on his way uh, to the country, he had sent his requirements for what it would be like to host him when he arrived. Now, in Argentina, he's treated like a demigod. I mean, people worship him there. Um, and he just thinks maybe that he is um, better than other people. And so when he, when he travels, he wants to be treated the same way, him and the whole team, when he came. So uh, he insisted that the rooms were prepared for his arrival. Every hotel he stayed in, all the room had to be painted white. No matter what hotel it was, they had to paint the, the rooms white, any room that he went into. Uh, every room for this whole soccer team had to be equipped with PlayStations, at least six PlayStation video game consoles. And uh, any room that he stayed in had to be equipped with, I kid you not, um, an electronic toilet imported from Japan known as the e bidet that had various drying mechanisms and spraying mechanisms. Um, it wasn't just his accommodations that had to be prepared before he came. He had very specific dietary requirements, and uh, they included these meal requests. And just imagine for a moment you were the host. You were the cook that had to prepare, not only after painting the room and getting the toilet ready, but you had to prepare this for him every single day. Ten hot dishes per day. 14 different salads at each and every meal, three different pasta sauces with every meal, three different desserts, one barbecue every three days, and my personal favorite, there had to be a round-the-clock, 24-7 availability of ice cream. I doubt that that was for the World Cup soccer players. I think that was him, and if you saw pictures of him in his later life, uh, I, it came from the ice cream. Well, today we're going to see a lady who is volunteering to host a, a very important guest. Not just somebody who uh, might think of themselves as important, but really the most important person that could ever come to visit. And imagine you were in charge of preparing accommodation and a meal for the Son of God coming into your house. And, and yet, we see because of Christ's great humility and a total different worldview of his priorities, uh, he acts quite differently from the normal prima donna that might be coming to visit. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 as we see what's happening here. Last week we looked at the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan is, was a, a parable that Jesus told in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And instead of just saying, well, your neighbor is whoever uh, God brings across your path, Jesus tells this amazing story, one of the great parables of the Good Samaritan. Um, and the point that he was making is, let me rather than answer your question, who qualifies as your neighbor... Let me answer this question. Are you neighborly? Let's talk about what it means, your character, to be neighborly. Which one of these people in this story is neighborly to the person that had need? And it happens to be a Samaritan. It's got nothing to do with your race or religion. It has to do with character, right, and who you are as a person. So that's where we left it off last week. Now Luke is going to highlight for us another example of activity replacing devotion. You say, well, how is that related to the, the Good Samaritan? Well, this had to do with the difference between character and activity. The, the man asked Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Give me an activity. Give me something to do. And Jesus responded with, let's talk about what kind of person you ought to be. Be neighborly. Not do something, but be a certain way. And here we have another example, uh, a contrast in real life of somebody who was focusing on what to do. And Jesus draws attention rather on who to be. And so we're going to learn four lessons from misplaced priorities so that you learn to put your trust in Jesus and also that you put Jesus in his rightful place. I think that's the outline we went with. Yeah, that you put Jesus in his rightful place in your life. We're going to look at this story is going to unfold in these four scenes, activity, attitude, accusation, and then the adjustment. So let me read for you from Luke chapter 10. Verse 38, now as they were traveling along, he, Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was also seated at the Lord's feet, 
listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the preparations alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her. And just from this little encounter, we find these four lessons uh, so that we put Jesus in his rightful place. And the first one is, let's look at the activity and learn some lessons about that. Verse 38, as they went on their way, Jesus enters the village. There's a woman named Martha, and she welcomes him into her home. So this is amazing. This is uh, Mary, Martha, and their brother, whose name is, pop quiz, what's Mary, Martha's brother's name? Lazarus, yeah. This is the Lazarus who will die. Uh, and, And... he will be revenant, and uh, this little family unit become fast friends with Jesus, but this is their first encounter. It appears to be the first time that he meets this family, and she, Martha, invites Jesus into her home. This is her home, um, so it doesn't appear to be any prior notice here. It's like as he was traveling along, he comes to a village. I'm sure this ha- happened all the time. We showed up in a village, and hey, who wants to host Jesus? And she volunteers. She seems to be a willing servant, kind of a type A variety, the proactive type. She's very servant-oriented, but she's make it happen. She's hospitable, and this is her house, so the pressure is on her. So right off the bat, we meet this woman. She's a great servant. She's being proactive. She's inviting Jesus in. She's taking the responsibility on herself, and you know what it's like if someone's coming over. It's usually not the husband. We don't know if she's married or not, but it's usually not the husband that's frantically, you know, uh, vacuuming and cleaning the things last minute. The husband's just like, what? This is how we live. Well, let's be authentic. And the wife's like, no, let's be hospitable and actually, you know, clean the plate before we serve it to someone. Um, And so that's kind of what's happening. This is her house. She's the one. Her reputation is at stake. She is going all out. And this is really the most important person who could ever come over for dinner. And so we're excited with her. Especially in Middle Eastern culture where the hospitality code is is such a priority that you're supposed to show lavish hospitality to people and you are supposed to show lavish hospitality especially to religious leaders. And so there's a lot of pressure on her. And in verse 39, we, we meet another lady who opted for a different way of showing honor. Verse 39 says she had a sister called Mary. Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, we have to cut Martha some slack for what's about to happen because she's under so much pressure. And really, if you have to identify with someone in the story, she's the one that we should actually most naturally identify with. Because most of us view serving the Lord as an activity. And that's what she's doing. She wants to honor the Lord. She's not She's not doing anything wrong here. She wants to be hospitable to these people, these guests. I want you to picture the scene. Um, the, the invitation goes out there, please come stay in my home. He's coming in for dinner, but he doesn't come alone. He comes with at least his 12 disciples, probably many of their spouses and families, that are, and maybe other groupies. that are. So, you know, we've got like a couple of dozen people cramming into her home. Maybe she's wealthy enough to have a large home. Maybe not, but, but here she is, and she is hosting this huge group of people. And if you had to host a soccer team of hungry young men, you'd be under some pressure. And so that's how she wants to serve. Mary, on the other hand, is serving in a different way. She's showing her devotion to Jesus by sitting there listening. How convenient. You know, and we always think of Mary as the hero of the story because we know the end. But at this point, let's just be honest. Martha's the one that we would all want to be. The one who's actually serving. The one who's doing the work to help support all these people who are in your home. And then your sister, she's sitting serenely soaking it in, taking little notes in her moleskin journal. And I'm the one in the kitchen and I'm you know, kneading the dough and I'm boiling the water and I'm giving people directions to the bathroom and I'm, I'm checking who needs drinks and refreshing that and you know, I'm telling the cooks what to do. And I'm, I'm frantically and I'm like, where's my sister? And she's all like, yes, Jesus, what else are you going to say? You know, and it's, I mean, I'm with Martha here. I'm like, this is not on. This is not right. Why am I the one doing all the work? 
And, and you're just what, too spiritual to come and knead some dough with me? To, to take out some, some coke and ice for the people sitting out there? Come on. But right off the bat here, we have to clarify something very important. Both activities are good. These activities aren't sinful, one way or the other. Serving is not sinful, and sitting is not sinful, right? But there's more to it than that. I mean, it would be really simple for us to say, well, obviously Mary's doing the right thing and Martha's doing the wrong thing if Mary is at church and Martha is robbing a bank, right? But Martha's not robbing a bank. Martha's not sinning. She's serving. Martha's doing the very thing I tell you to do when you come to church, right? Don't come thinking about yourself. Think about other people. Come see how you can contribute. See how you can serve. That's what Christians are told to do. Also, Christians are told to be hospitable. She's the only one in the story who's obeying the command to be hospitable. So she's not sinning. Mary's also not sinning. Listening to Jesus teach, certainly there's nothing wrong with that either. So here we learn our first lesson, the activity. We have to learn that sometimes you have to choose not between what's good and bad, but what's good and what's best. It's a very important lesson for you to grow as you grow in your maturity as a Christian is that sometimes your decisions are not between sin and worship, bad and good, but between good and a, a better thing to do. You know, Paul sometimes says, um, you know, in 1 Corinthians, what's in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. That's in a context of Christian liberty, and maybe you have the right to do something, and technically this would be perfectly fine, but you choose not to do it because there's something more important that you're trying to accomplish. And so, for example, in that context, eating meat that was offered to idols, it's not a big deal. Idols don't exist. God knows that. The meat was cheap. Just eat it. But now you have a weaker brother who's offended by eating meat offered to idols, you know, the ladies have been studying this in the ladies' Bible study. That's why it's fresh in my mind. Um, and, and so the, the more mature brother says, you know, I'm not going to eat this then if it's going to offend you. He's allowed to eat it. The Bible makes that clear. But he chooses not to because there's something better than exercising your liberty. And that is helping a weaker brother until they become stronger in the Lord. Right? And so, so here is an example of somebody choosing between something good and something better. Some conflict even arises from this. You know, sometimes we think of the Christian life as choosing between good and bad, like going to church or skipping church. Going to church is good, skipping church is bad, right? Or should I go into debt for a vacation, or should I be content with what I have? And we kind of pit things as, as well, that going into debt would be bad, being content would be good. But it becomes way trickier when you have to choose between a bunch of good options. Should I donate money to a dog shelter or should I donate money to a church? There's nothing wrong with donating money to a dog shelter. That's a good thing to do. Rather spend it on that and some of the other things you spend your money on. But the Bible doesn't command that anywhere. It's not sinful to do that. It's not bad to do that. In fact, it's good. But isn't it better to give money to a gospel enterprise of some sort? Help people rather than animals? I mean, you know me, I'm, I'm all for the animals, but it's not between bad and good. It's between good and better, right? So much of the Christian life requires this wisdom, prioritizing what to do and what to neglect. You know, as elders, we're faced with this all the time when people come with, can you please support this ministry? You know, everyone has their pet ministry that they love. Uh, you know, this ministry... The Harley Davidson Hells Angels gospel ministry, you know, it's like, or the, I mean, I picked that one. That was an actual one somebody came to me with, a, a, a motorbike ministry. I love motor, motorcycles, and, and I think it's a great idea. But if you say yes to that, you're saying no to the missionary who's learning foreign language and translating the Bible and planting a church in a seminary, because you don't have enough money to do all of it, Right. And so you have to have like a priority structure and you have to just figure out this isn't bad. We're not saying the ministry you're asking money for is bad. We're just saying we only have so much money. Let's put it where we think the most good is going to be done. And so, and for each 
person, that might be different. That's what makes it confusing. There's no just simple right or wrong. God calls different people to do different things. And so sometimes it's okay to say no to something that's good, a good opportunity, so that you can make time or place or free up resources for something that's even better. It's okay to say no to some social events and sporting events, even ministry events. It's okay to say no to some ministry events so that you can make time for and say yes to spending time with your spouse or with your kids or with the Lord. And that's something pastors struggle with. And many of you who are very active in ministry sometimes struggle to say no to ministry to say yes to family because ministry is always good. But it's not, but we're not saying the ministry is bad. We're just saying maybe it's not what's best in this situation. I've, I've, I've actually used this line on the telephone with somebody before where they called and they said, please, we're having a major marital crisis. Can you please come over right now? We need counseling. It's a desperate situation. And this was a night that my wife and I had put aside to have a date night. And, you know, we'd made arrangements and everything. And... I mean, there's more context. The particular people who were asking had crises quite often. <laughs> it wasn't the first time I'd had a phone call like that at night. And I actually had to use this line with them. I said, if I say yes to you and no to my wife again, I'm going to have the same problems with my marriage that you have tonight. <laughs> and so your marriage problems are going to have to wait until tomorrow. And we can have an, make an appointment and I can come over and see you. But I'm not going to always say no to my family for, for the ministry because over time I have trouble in my family with my, with my wife or with my kids. I can't do ministry anymore. And it's the same with all Christians. If you're not taking care of what God has given you to do because you're taking care of other things, including ministry, and you can't say no to good things for the sake of the better things, over time that leads to trouble. So that's the first lesson we learn. The second one we learn here is about attitude. One is about activity. You can have a bunch of good activities and you have to learn which one's more important. We're about to learn that. But there's something else going on here that makes it a little easier for us to figure out that Mary's right and Martha's wrong. And that is attitude. Look at verse 40. Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Just pause there for a moment. <laughs> How often do you go to the Lord and rebuke him? Hopefully never, okay? This lady is so focused on her good thing that she's doing that she's rebuking God. Jesus, don't you care? She's accusing him. Why don't you go tell her to do something? I mean, this lady is in charge. At least she thinks she's in charge even of Jesus. Tell her then to help me. Verse 41, but the Lord answered her. And I, I like how Luke, uh, how Luke doesn't say Jesus answered her. The Lord, the master, the one in charge of, you know, the universe. The Lord answered her very gently, very graciously, and yet putting her in her place a little. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Many things. Martha is sinning. Not in her serving, not in her good activity, but in her attitude. Look at the words used to describe her. It's distracted. It's a word that means to be pulled away. She's being pulled away from what's on offer to her. What's on offer to her is time with Jesus in her home, teaching a Bible study. She's being pulled away with this other priority that she has, not a bad one, serving, much serving. And Jesus calls her anxious and troubled. Now, serving is not a sin, but anxiety is. We learn that from what Paul teaches the Philippians later on, right? Um, Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Be anxious for nothing. It is sin to be anxious. 
And I know sometimes when people are new to the church and I throw that out as one of the examples of sinful things, I, I see them get really anxious. So, oh, wait, what? The anxiety is a sin? I didn't know that. And then sometimes they'll come up afterwards and it's like, did I hear you right? You said that anxiety is a sin? And I'm like, let me just read you the verse just so you know. Don't shoot the messenger here. Yeah, anxiety is a sin. You're not allowed to be anxious. And she's anxious. And she's troubled. And she's distracted. While she's serving. So you can be doing something good, but doing it in a way that's not honoring to the Lord. It's not prioritizing the things that he prioritizes. Complaining, grumbling and complaining. She's, com she's, you know, she's going straight to management here. Don't you love it when those people in line, they're not getting what they want. They're like, can I speak to your manager, please? It's like, she doesn't go to Mary. Hey, Mary, I really need some help. Can you come get the drinks? She goes to Jesus. You don't care what's going on here. You tell her to come help me. <laughs> I want to speak to your manager. Oh, man. It's, it's complaining. It's arrogant. It's embarrassing to Mary. I mean, there's so much going on here. Grumbling and complaining is a sin according to Philippians 2.14. And so it's not her activity of serving. It's her attitude that's making her sinful. It's her attitude that's sinful. Not the activity, but the attitude. And so sometimes people fall into this trap in the church. They, they come, they, they, they think of um, a good activity as counting as worship, but they don't include the attitude. I go to church. I tithe. I go to home group three of the four times. I, I, I'm serving. I'm doing these things. I served on nursery twice. I even covered for so-and-so who didn't show up. What more does the Lord want from me? And what's the answer? He wants your heart. He wants your attitude. He wants your devotion. He wants your affection. He wants what's inside. So much so that if you're doing the right thing and you're doing it with the wrong motive, with the wrong attitude, he doesn't want it. He doesn't want the right thing anymore. It doesn't count. That's why he says, some great verses where he says to, to the Israelites, you bring me all these sacrifices. Do I lack food that I need you to bring me animals? I own the cattle on a thousand hills. If I want a burger, I'll just go get one. Thank you very much. You think I need these sacrifices for me? I already own all these sacrifices. I'm doing this for you so that you learn what a sacrifice is, so that you give up something that you own. I mean, you, if you're writing a check, I moved the decimal over one, that's exactly 10%, that'll do. Put it in there. I could really have used that money on something I wanted to do, but I'm a Christian, so I got to put in my 10%. Then, um, firstly, the Bible doesn't teach a tithe and 10% for New Testament giving anyway, but you know what it does teach? That you, God loves a cheerful giver. You see the difference? Well, here's your, here's your money, Lord. Lord says, I don't want that money. I don't need that money. Just so we're clear, we're still going to cash the check, but that's, that's between you and the Lord. It doesn't count for you and the Lord. I mean, we're still going to be able to build what we need to build, but, but what God wants is your devotion. What God wants is your attitude. He wants the, the heart of sacrifice. In Matthew 19, 13, Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quote. Jesus is quoting from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now that's an overstatement. God does desire sacrifice. He commands it. But the people in Hosea were bringing sacrifice, but they, weren't, they had no heart in it. There was no sincerity in there. And so he's saying, you're missing the point of the sacrifice. I don't desire that sacrifice without the mercy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, so that one was Matthew 9, 13. This is 2 Corinthians eleven three. 3. Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Interesting. He's comparing the serpent deceiving Eve and breaking a clear-cut commandment by questioning God's authority in her life, by choosing better than God, by rejecting the fellowship that God had given her with him, 
for her independence, he equates that terrible act with being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what Paul's worried about, that the people's devotion to Christ isn't sincere. It's not pure. Revelation 2, 4, Jesus says, I have this against you, that you've abandoned your first love. Yeah, you're doing all these other things, but you've abandoned your first love. It's Revelation 2, 4. Robert Murray McShane said, What a man is in secret, on his knees before God, is what he is, and nothing more. Someone once taught me this lesson that's always stuck with me. They said, when you sing to the Lord on a Sunday, you should imagine that you're singing into a microphone. And when I sing on the front row, I have this microphone here. You should all be very grateful that it's on mute. But I have it. And so sometimes I think of this even then, you, that you have a microphone that is tuned to only pick up the parts of what you're singing that you actually mean. Imagine that. Imagine God only heard this, the words from our congregation that we actually meant. What would that sound like? Would it be f as full as it is on a Sunday? We have glorious singing on a Sunday where it's full and it's booming in here. And it just makes you want to yell amen. But that's, that's because we just hear all of it. Imagine we only heard what was sincere. I really hope it would be just as loud. But would your singing kind of tune in and out? Sketchy reception? Would there even be any sound at all? Your mind's wandering, thinking about the week, and you're, thinking, you're singing about the love of Jesus, but you're not even thinking about it. Andre Agassi um, posed for a, a picture for Canon. He was like the brand ambassador for Canon cameras. And I remember the ad, it was, you know, Andre Agassi, tennis player, and then so the image is everything. That was their slogan. Image is everything. You know, it's kind of punny because it's the image on a photograph. But with God, image is nothing. Nothing. Attitude is everything. With God, attitude is everything. So we see this sinful attitude leading her to say and do some pretty silly things. The third lesson we learn is the accusation. So we've got the activity, the attitude. Here's the accusation. Lord, do you not care, verse 40, do you not care that my sisters left me alone to serve? Tell her to help me. So she's rebuking Jesus. She's, she's accusing him of not caring. Not that, are you not aware? She's not accusing him of ignorance. She's a, she's, this is worse. You can see what's going on here, Lord. I know you can. She's sitting there and I'm the one handing out the drinks and you can spot it and you're not doing anything about it. And since I've determined that the right thing is for her to help me, and you haven't determined that, it shows that you don't care. Let me ask you this. Who is Martha saying Jesus doesn't care about? Her, yeah. You don't care about me because I'm the one doing the work by myself. When has devotion to Jesus had anything to do with you? But that's sometimes the attitude that we have. I'm not getting what I want. I don't like those songs. I don't like the way they do this in church. I don't like the way they do that in church. Nobody cares. We're doing church for Jesus. And Jesus is there and he's teaching people and he's teaching stuff that's never been heard before. He's writing the Bible. He's dictating it, you know. And she wants people to be in the kitchen. So she rebukes him. She's putting Jesus in his place until he puts her in her place. So the accusation shows us that when you serve God with the wrong attitude, you've got the right activity with the wrong attitude, it leads you to sin. It leads you to blame God for not caring and not giving you what you think you need. So it really reveals what you're actually serving for then. You're serving for thanks. You're serving for recognition. You're not serving out of devotion. Otherwise, it wouldn't bug you that you're the one that's doing it. And like the guy 
you know, Martha's treating Jesus like his purpose in existence is to make her life easier. If you really cared and you were really in charge and you were really doing what you're supposed to be doing, my life would be a little bit easier. It's, it reminds me of the, the guy in the, where Jesus is busy teaching and he yells out, you know, Lord, teacher, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Like, this is fantastic. God came down as a human being to live among us to sort out this inheritance issue for me. This is fantastic. Jesus is here to make my life a little easier. And Jesus just dismisses the whole thing. I'm not the judge in this. And then he says, be on guard against all kinds of covetousness. I don't care about your little human, who gets what inheritance, who gets what money that's going to burn anyway. I care about your heart. Why do you want that stuff? I mean, imagine that, asking Jesus to make sure that I have more money than he does. Talk about missing the point. Jesus is like, I'm poor. Why don't you be poor? Let's talk about character. So some folks serve in the church for recognition. They serve for thanks. They want a pat on the back. They want attention. They want recognition of some sort. And when they don't get it, they're complaining or they're sinning in their heart. Nobody's noticing. No one's thanking me. No one appreciates what I'm doing. And sometimes they'll quit in a huff. Well, I'm not doing this anymore then. I'm the only one doing it. How come nobody else is doing it? Well, uh, there's something to be said for why, why is it always the 10% that does 90% of the work and the 90% warm the pews for everyone else. There, there is something to be said for that. But this point, I just want you to focus on why are you serving? If what's upsetting you, so the way you know what you're serving for is what upsets you in your service. Does it upset you that you're not getting thanks? Then you know you're serving for thanks. If you're serving Jesus as a way of showing devotion, then the harder the service, the more you get to serve him and be devoted to him. So you wouldn't be upset that it's all landing on you. Remember what Jesus says in Luke 17. He says, um, he tells that story about the, the servant who's plowing the field all day and the master comes in and, and the master doesn't say, oh, you've been working so hard. Why don't, why don't you just have some dinner first, clean yourself up, and when you're ready, just let me know and we'll have dinner. That's not what happens. He calls the servant in straight from the field and says, I'm home, serve me. And then, after that, um, prepare supper for me, dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink. And then Jesus says, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? <laughs> wow. You're reading the Bible. You're trying to learn how to live the Christian life. And Jesus is like, here's this rich guy with the servant. The servant slaves all day for him. And when he comes home, he's like, okay, servant, drop what you're doing. Serve me and then you can eat. Dress properly, though. I don't want to see you in your work outfit. Ugh. And Jesus says, does he even thank the servant? The answer is no. And then you, you almost feel like the next verse should be, no, but as a Christian master, he should thank the guy. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, so you also, when you've done all that you're commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's the lesson Jesus gives us. You're the servant in the story who's working all day, plowing all day, comes in, doesn't get a thank you, just gets more work. And Jesus says, don't expect a thank you. That's your job. It's kind of a weird message, isn't it? That's Luke 17, verse 7 and following. But it just recalibrates for us. Listen, we exist for God's glory. He doesn't exist for our comfort. And a lot of Christians live their life like, well, I'm doing all this. Why is bad things happening to me? Like, I'm putting in what I'm supposed to. Where's my thanks? Where's my, where's my reward? Where's my benefit? Where's my dividend payment for, for supporting this Christianity company. No, 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 no. You're a slave. Your job's to go and slave all day. And when you're done slaving, slave some more. And no one says thank you. And then you die. That's what it is to be a Christian. And then your reward comes in heaven. Not on earth. On earth, life is about serving the Lord and serving everyone else and just dealing with what happens. And don't expect a thank you. And if, if that's not what you signed up for, tough. That's Christianity. We don't serve for a pat on the back. We do it as a way of showing love to Jesus. And he, his thanks comes right at the end. 
when everything's been done, and you're dead, he raises you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Not thank you. You were doing what you're supposed to do, but you know what you get? You did it well. You were faithful. Come into the joy of your master. That's what we work for, the joy of Jesus. We want to please him. 1 Corinthians 5, we aim to please him, verses 9 and following. We aim to please him, whether we're dead or alive, we're in the body, we're at home or away, we, we aim to please him. So that's the accusation. Now we see the adjustment. We see Jesus kind of fix things um, in verse 41. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. There's the adjustment. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. I'm not going to tell her to drop what she's doing and do what you're doing because there's one necessary thing and she chose it. I'm not going to be the one to take it away from her. I call this an adjustment because if you've ever been to a chiropractor, that's what they, oh, you need an adjustment. And uh, then they lie you down, they click, 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 and they straighten your spine. You're like, oh, yeah, that does actually feel better. That's what Jesus is doing here. You're coming in, and you're all bent out of shape. You need a little alignment happening. You need a, an adjustment. And so he just kind of clicks her back into place. Listen, your priorities are wrong. This is all crooked thinking. One thing is necessary. So Mary had a choice. Martha had a choice. Serve food to Jesus or be served spiritual food by Jesus. Which is the better one? They're both good. We established that up front. But if Jesus were here in the flesh and he walked into the lobby to go and teach a Bible study, where would you be? Here? You wouldn't be listening to me because I'd be in the lobby. Right? I'd be sitting at his feet and so would you. And if something needed to be done, tough. Jesus is here. I'm at his feet, right? Like that's, that's somebody who's locked in. That's, that's the one thing that's necessary is complete and utter devotion to Jesus Christ. Now, this can be confusing because aren't we supposed to serve one another? I don't understand how you, isn't there a way to do both? And the answer is yes, there's a way to do both. See, what's happening here is the one thing necessary, Mary chose that. Martha thought that cultural politeness and the human need for food is more important than a spiritual priority. It's very, very interesting, and it's a very common problem that people still have today. It's a, such a basic thing. God designed us to need fuel. He designed us to need food so that we would be dependent every single day. That's why he says you need to pray every day for your daily bread. He wants us to be dependent. Can't even go a few hours without needing a nap. You, know, you can't go a few hours without needing a drink. You need food. And he made us that way. But then he comes on the scene and he says, What I say to you is more important even than that. You do need food to stay alive. You know what you need more? Every word that comes from my mouth. And that's what he said to Satan, right? With the temptation. He's like, oh, you've been so hungry. It's been 40 days. You make some bread. If you're the son of God, just prove it. And that's just a good way to prove it because you'll get to eat too. And Jesus says to him, depart from me. But what, what is he? He quotes from Deuteronomy. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that lesson is being played out here. We see this in John 4 where the disciples are hungry. Jesus sends them. He's at the well. He sends them into the Samaritan town to go get food. When they come out, he's preached the gospel to the Samaritan woman, sent off the first Gentile missionary. And uh, they show up and they're like, well, we all ate because we were so hungry, but we brought you some food. And, he's, and he was hungry too, and he was tired and he stayed. But he said, I'm no longer hungry. I have food that you know not of. Somebody's like, who brought him food? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. There is something so gratifying and satiating and fulfilling about being in God's will and doing what God wants that it helps you overcome even your physical need and desire and appetite for food. People get cranky when their blood sugar gets low. I'm sorry I snapped at you, but I was hungry. 
Well, Jesus was pretty hungry after 40 days, but he managed to do the will of God and point out that that's more important than food. And that's kind of what's happening here. I mean, what, what's going to happen if Jesus, if Mary, Martha doesn't serve Jesus and the disciples? Are they going to starve to death? This is the same man who just fed 5,000 people. Jesus can take care of himself. And so the way she was doing this, at the level she was doing it with the anxiety and the distraction and the intensity and the extravagance and the, was missing the whole point here. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, what we do with Christ is more important than what we do for Christ. So Jesus isn't telling Martha, don't serve. So this is, this is important. This is what helps me understand this encounter. Jesus isn't telling Martha, you stop serving. If anything, he's saying, do it with a good attitude. He's just saying, leave Mary alone. She's chosen something else. There are different ways of showing devotion. And the way that you're showing is by working in the kitchen. The way that she's showing is to sit and listen to me and have her life changed. And you know what? That's actually the better one. So why don't you just leave her to do what she's doing and you do what you're doing? And everybody's happy. But what happens is it is a human condition that we have that we feel that the way we choose to worship is the right way. And the way we choose to worship is the way that other people should be worshiping too. So if they aren't worshiping the same way I'm worshiping, I'm better than them. And I'm actually a little angry at them. And that's just kind of missing how God makes different people in different ways. and gives them different callings. Now, there are wrong ways to worship. We know that. But just because a person isn't devoted to your pet little ministry, your pet little priority, your little thing that you're good at, you're gifted at, doesn't mean that they're not worshiping. You do you, is what that means in the Greek. People, you do you. And you leave Mary to do what Mary's doing. And don't judge other people. Serving is one way of showing devotion and another way is attentive learning. So let's avoid seeing our way of worshiping as better than other people's way. And then he says this in this adjustment. One thing is necessary. Not one thing is superior. One thing is necessary. There's only one thing on the list of priorities that actually has to be there. So it's not like there's a list of ten important things and Jesus is at the top. No, Jesus is saying there's only one actually important thing. And that's me. Everything else is a way of doing that one thing. So devotion to Jesus is the only thing that should be on your priority list. And you're like, well, hold on a second. Surely being a good husband, being a good wife, you know, family, uh, work priorities, my health, my country, you know, God's at the top, and Jesus is at the top, and then it's family, and then it's work, and what are, and everyone's got their no, 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 no. You're missing it. That's not how, there is no pyramid. It's a circle. It's a dartboard. Jesus is the bullseye. Everything else revolves around Jesus. And yes, if you are a husband, you need to be a good husband. And if you are a wife, you need to be a good wife. Not as a secondary thing to Jesus, but as a way of worshiping Jesus. And yes, you have to do well at work. And you must be a good worker. As a way of worshiping Jesus. And you should be a good steward of your own health, too, as a way of worshiping Jesus. And you should be doing ministry, and you should be contributing to the church, and you should be doing all these things as a way of worshiping Jesus. You take Jesus out of it, and what are we even doing here? I mean, this is, this is missing the point of everything. Well, I didn't have time to read my Bible today because I was so busy. Doing what? People are like, I can't come to church. I'm so tired from doing what? What are you doing that's keeping you from the one thing that's necessary? You're, you're living your life wrong if you, as a habit, continually cannot do devotion to God in the way that he has commanded because you're so busy doing the other things that you have convinced yourself are good things. And I'm not saying they're sinful because it's so weird. You, go to, you say to somebody, hey, I don't know if you should take that job that's going to make you work every Sunday and take you away from church. Well, we're in the New Covenant and we're not under the Old Testament Sabbath and you are working on a Sunday and, and they have this whole rationalization. It's like, well, that's not the point. 
You've made a decision that's taking you away from something God has said is good for you and that he wants you to do. Sing with other people. Sit under the preaching of God's word. Pray with other people. Fellowship with other people. Serve other people. Do it at least once a week. Do it when they gather. No, I can't. I'm so busy. I got this thing. I got this job. Get a different job. Oh, it's so hard to find jobs. You just need one. And guess who's in charge of giving jobs? Jesus. So you go to Jesus and say, I got this job, but it keeps taking me away from you. Can you please give me a job that brings me closer to you? He'll be like, yeah, sure, no problem. That's how that works. I got friends in high places. You know, the Trinity. They run the world. <laughs> they. Don't say they. The <laughs> Jesus runs the world. He's in charge. So if you need something and it's for his glory, just ask him. He says, you ask for anything in my name, I'll give it to you. There's no caveat. Well, the caveat is in my name. Do it for him. Do it for his glory. He'll give it to you. And people say, I'm praying for this one thing. I really hope that I get it. Please pray with me. And then you ask some questions like, yeah, no, it's going to take me away from all the things that God wants me to do. It's going to be bad for my family. It's going to be bad for my health. It's going to be bad for my spiritual life. I really wanted to pay so much. God's not going to answer that prayer. If he does, it's as a judgment to give you what you deserve. So, devotion to Christ is the only one necessary thing but all of life is a channel of doing that. So you can serve in devotion to Jesus. 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There you go. There's something we should do. Just like Martha. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is the one who speaks the articles of God. Whoever serves is the one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. So Peter's saying, serve. Are you good at speaking? Do something with speaking. Are you good at serving? Do something with serving. Are you good at hospitality? Do something with hospitality. But do it all by the strength that God supplies for his glory through Jesus Christ. That, that's getting the point. Eat in devotion to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Work as devotion to Jesus. Colossians 3.22, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Colossians 3.22 is a great verse for anyone who has a job. Because if you have a job, you're going to have a bad day. Because remember Genesis 3, work is cursed. So if you have a job, there's going to be a bad day. If you have a boss, he's going to be a bad boss, at least sometimes. So remember, you're not working for him or for a paycheck or to contribute to society. All of those things are just secondary. You are working, Colossians 3, 22 and 23, do your work hardly as for the Lord and not for men. And the list keeps on going. I mean, anything you want to do, throwing the entertainment, you know, golf, uh, uh, whatever, volunteering, anything that you do, you can do by the strength God supplies for the glory of Jesus Christ. And then you're doing the one, the only thing that you're here on earth to do, and that is to give Christ glory. And if you can't do something to Christ's glory, don't do it. If you can't watch TV to Christ's glory because what you're watching is convicting your conscience, then you shouldn't be watching it. If you're spending your money in a way that can't give him glory, or if you're spending your time in a way that can't give him glory, or you, the people you hang out with you can't do in a way that gives him glory. If there's anything that you're doing in your life, you're like, this moment in time, I'm not able to do this for the one thing that's necessary and give all my devotion to Christ. Then don't do it. That's how you know what a sin is. Don't judge someone else because they might be able to play that sport or have that hobby or, you know, go hunting or whatever. They might be able to do that to the glory of God, and you can't. That's, that's between them and the Lord. Don't, don't be the Martha that's telling Jesus what to tell other people to do. You do you. And so the final application is just don't be a prima donna for the kingdom. <laughs> be a servant. Do everything for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder that uh, really, the Christian life is so simple and that there's only one thing we need to do and that is be devoted to our Savior. And so we pray that you would help us to do that this very week in what we do for work and school and in our relationships, uh, the way we think, the way we speak, all the things we do, that we would do so for your glory. And as your Spirit shows us areas of our lives that we can't glorify you, I pray that you would help us to 
cast those aside, pluck them out and throw them from us. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, well, we have just a couple of minutes for Q&A. So do you have any questions? Yes, hi. Shoot. Uh-huh. That's a great question. How do you, if you have a job that takes you away from your family um, in a way, so let me just caveat that. Uh, l let me finish his question. If you have a job that takes you away from your family, how do you ask Jesus for a job that allows you to spend time with your family? Is that kind of what you're asking? So let me just caveat that. And that's what I love about Q&A. It helps me to tweak a little bit of what I said. If you have a job that takes you away from your family in a way that is detrimental to your family and the role that God has given you to do, because there are ways different people are different. And I'm not saying that any job that ever takes you away from your family at all is always bad. That's not true. I mean, I, my job takes me away from my family if I go on a missions trip or something like that, for example, whatever. Um, so I don't want to be a hypocrite there. There are ways of doing it. But if it is you're away for so long, so many times, at so many crucial moments, that you aren't able to fulfill the role that God has for you. So as the husband, that would be as the spiritual leader of the home. As the mother, would be as the homemaker. Um, then, yeah, then you need to fix that. And sometimes you can't fix that on your own. And that's why we have grace from God. And so we ask God for guidance. You get counsel from your elders, from the word. Um, you ask God, you said, how, how do you ask him for a job like this? Dear God, I need a job. That one that I can obey you. Please make that possible. He might give you a promotion at your work. He might give you a demotion. He, who knows? Um, he can arrange those things. And I've seen that over and over in my ministry where people are really sincere about wanting to do the right thing for the right reason for the Lord. And we pray together. And then almost immediately there'll be an answer and we can you know, as a church, praise the Lord for those answered prayers. Um, man, I mean, I'm thinking of examples right now, but I've seen that happen where people are like, I really want to do this. I just don't know how. Well, let's pray. And then boom, there's an opportunity that the Lord provides. There's people in this church we've done that with. Good question. You're like, but I trained for this. Well, I don't know. God can work it out that you can use your training. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, Haley. Good question. So if you're dealing with an issue and the person's response is to counsel you that you need to bind the spirit of that issue in Jesus' name. How many people have heard that, like heard someone suggest that? Yeah, it's quite a common thing. Um, and your question is, is that biblical? So short answer, no. Um, let me explain why, though. So what, what they're getting that from, so the reason some Christians misinterpret um, what the Bible says about binding is because they read passages that use that word. Like, for, for example, um, if you're going to go into the strong man's house, you first have to bind the strong man. And so that's referring to Jesus has come on earth to, to, um, to take power away from Satan and his work to enable the flourishing of the kingdom. Um, at other places you see, the, the, in Revelation, you have an angel binding Satan for a thousand years, literally binding him with a chain. And so they kind of, they take that metaphor of binding a person, a strong man, and binding Satan physically with a chain, and they turn it into like a spiritualized version of that, where you bind forces of darkness, usually demonic forces, by, with your words, which is not what's happening in those two passages. Um, and so what that looks like is, man, I've really been struggling with pornography. So, um, okay, well, let's pray that we bind the demon of pornography, bind the demon of sexual temptation. And so then they pray that in Jesus' name we bind that demon. Well, the problem is that the Bible says that sin is not coming from a demon. It's coming from your own heart. And James says that your sin comes, everyone is tempted when they conceive of that in their own heart and, and it fleshes out. So you're not binding anything. There, there may not even be a demon around for miles. And you're just like, 
binding, binding, and it's not binding anything. And you feel super confident, and guess what? You're going to go home and you're going to sin again because you're not repenting inside. So that's one thing. The other thing is if it's an issue of like depression or a condition like um, anxiety or whatever it is, well, you just need to bind that force. So we're going to bind that. But these are just words. They're not taught anywhere in the Bible. The only passage in the Bible that teaches Christians how to do spiritual warfare with demons and Satan is Ephesians chapter 6. And so it's the armor of God passage. And it's a whole list of things that you can do. And they're all know the gospel, preach the gospel, be ready to share the gospel, um, pray, have faith, know your Bible. So there's no binding at all. So no, it's not biblical. The one place you see people try to do that is in Acts chapter 19 with the sons of a guy named Sceva are Jewish exorcists. And they've been, you know, they're casting out a demon that's possessed a person. They say, we bind you in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches because we kind of saw that work. And the demon's like, I know Paul and I know Jesus. Who are you? And then he beats them up and he strips them naked and kicks them out. Well, it didn't work. They didn't bind him. So, no, it's just, it's just, um, it's a phrase that has been passed around, usually kind of Pentecostal, charismatic churches for several decades. And kids hear it growing up, and so it gets passed from one generation to the next, that if you have a spiritual problem, you have to pray a prayer and bind it. And it just doesn't work. It's not biblical. And it actually goes against what the scriptures say you need to do, which is apply the truth of scripture to that situation. If you have a pornography problem, you don't pray to a demon anyway. Never talk to demons. Never pray to Satan. Yuck. You pray to God, not to bind whatever, to change you and to give you a new heart and that you repent of your sin. And then he gives you grace to do that. And then you throw away your cell phone. That helps too. Go bind that. Good. Any other questions? Great question. How do you? Oh, you're talking, okay, good, good question, follow-up question. How do you line that up with the, the passage that says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven? So you're talking about Matthew chapter 16. That's where um, Jesus says to Peter, you will be the rock, on, on this rock I'm going to build my church. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. That's why you have two or three witnesses. It's in the context, Matthew uh, 16, 18, and Matthew 18, 16. Uh, those are the two verses. And they it's dealing with church discipline. And the point there is, that what the church decides in a church discipline case is what heaven agrees with. That's why you, don't, you can't do it yourself. You can't as an individual say, I think that person, they call themselves a Christian, but I don't think they're a Christian. You have to do it as a church. And in a church, you have to have at least two people. So two or three witnesses, people agree as a church, this person is not a believer. They cannot take communion. We're, we're handing them over to Satan, is language that Paul uses. That is then in line with what heaven wants for that person, is what that's talking about. So that's not, again, binding something in heaven is not what these people are talking about anyway. They're talking about binding a spiritual force on earth anyway. Good question. You had your hand up. Yeah. Brian. Oh, what a great question. Yeah. Um, so Brian's asking about university students that he sees that join a church and become members there, but for the wrong reason. And he's asking for, like, is there a list of most important, um, a tier list of priorities when looking for a good church? Um, rather than have a tier list, I would say that there's a couple of essentials that a church should have if you're going to be a member there. Um, and a few diagnostic questions you can ask. So if a church is preaching the Bible, and so what I mean by that is, like, it doesn't even have to be an expository ministry. I just, that's, the, I think, the best way of preaching. But if a person is taking the truths of Scripture and teaching that authoritatively, that's a must. Because the, you know, definition of a church, according to the Reformers, is a place where the word is rightly preached and the sacraments are rightly administered. So you're looking for a church that's doing preaching, baptism, and communion, as right as, as they can. So preaching must be, it's not the pastor coming up with ideas like binding or whatever and making it up, but that there's truths in scripture that he's explaining, whether that's in topical series or whatever, less important, as long as the, the truths are coming from scripture, um, not just from his own ideas. And then the other thing you're looking for, baptism and communion. So what that's talking about is, are the people in the church believers? 
as opposed to a church that's mixed with believers and unbelievers and they can all be members. Um, and if there are believers, is church discipline being done? So I was, the, the best diagnostic question to ask a church up front is, do you practice church discipline? When was the last time you did it? Because that is the hardest thing for churches to do. And the only churches that do that are ones that believe the Bible and try to apply it. Um, and the reason that's part of the definition of a healthy church is because if your church is made up of believers and one of them starts acting like an unbeliever, what do you do about it? And if you, if you just leave the person in, 1 Corinthians 5 says that leaven is going to spread and you're going to have a church full of unbelievers eventually. So the church is a group of believers. So I would say if you're preaching the word, you're doing church discipline, and the music, usually people pick churches because of the music. And what they mean by that is they like the type of music. What they should be looking for is the content of the music. The style is way less relevant. It's the content of the music. So if it's Christ-centered, God-glorifying, it's not about the people. They're not singing for a half an hour about me, come fill me, I want this, me, 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 but rather truths about Jesus, doctrines about Jesus, less about the Holy Spirit. The more church, um, the more church sings about the Holy Spirit and to the Holy Spirit, the less they are reading the Bible because the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit and he says all glory and honor is being directed to Christ and that he has a, um, a hidden role in that, uh, John chapter 16. So if, if a church is putting the Spirit in the center at the expense of time singing about Christ or the Father through Christ, then it's usually a bad sign. But in general, if you're looking for a church that's preaching truth in their lyrics about Christ and extolling him, um, and, and they're preaching the word, that's, that's a good church. That's a healthy church. There's lots of other. There's nine marks of a healthy church if you ask Mark Dever, but those are the two I, I would start with. Good music, meaning content, and good preaching, meaning content. And then if they don't do church discipline, you know that there's going to be a problem in the morality in the church. Does that answer your question? I mean, that's just like a really short. <laughs> I would highly recommend you get nine marks of a healthy church by Mark Dever. It's brilliant. And yeah, Mark Dever.